This presentation is delivered by the Stanford Center for Professional Development. Okay, good morning. Welcome back. Um, what I want to do today is um, actually wrap up our discussion on learning theory and so on. And um, I'm going to start by talking about Bayesian statistics and regularization. Um, and then take a very brief digression to tell you about online learning. And um, most of today's lecture will actually be on uh, various pieces of advice for applying machine learning algorithms to problems like, you know, like your project or other problems you may go work on after you graduate from this class. Um, let's start by talking about Bayesian statistics and regularization. So you remember from last week, um, we started to talk about learning theory and we learned about bias and variance. Um, and I guess in the previous lecture, we spent most of the previous lecture talking about, talking about algorithms for model selection um, and for feature selection. We talked about cross-validation, right? So most of the methods we talked about in the previous lecture um, were ways for you to try to simplify the model. So for example, the feature selection algorithms we talked about gives you a way to eliminate a number of features um, so as to reduce the number of parameters you need to fit and thereby reduce overfitting. Right? You remember that? So feature selection algorithms, choose a subset, choose a subset of the features so that you have less parameters and you might be less likely to overfit. Right? What I want to do today is talk about a different way to prevent overfitting um, and is, is a method called regularization and is a way that lets you keep all the parameters. Um, so here's the idea and, and I'm going to illustrate this example with um, say linear regression. Um, <coughs> So if you take yeah, the linear regression model, the, the very first model we learned about, right? Um, we said that we would choose the parameters via uh, maximum likelihood, right? And that meant that you know we would choose the parameters theta that maximize. Um, the probability of the data, we choose parameters theta that maximize the probability of the data we observe, right? Um, and so, to give this sort of procedure a name, this is one example of um, what's called a frequentist procedure. And frequentist, you can think of as, as sort of maybe one school of statistics. Um, and the philosophical view behind writing this down was we envisioned that there was some true parameter theta out there that generated you know, the x's and the y's. There was some true parameter theta that govern housing prices of y as a function of x. And we don't know what the value of theta is. And we'd like to come up with some procedure for estimating the value of theta. Okay? And, and so maximum likelihood is just one possible procedure for estimating the unknown value for theta. Um, and <clears throat> in the way we formulated this, you know, theta was not a random variable, right? That's why I said, so theta is just some true value out there. It's not random or anything. We just don't know what it is. And we have a procedure called maximum likelihood for estimating <coughs> the value for theta. So this is one example of what's called a frequentist procedure. Um, the alternative to the, I guess, the frequentist school of statistics is um, the Bayesian school. 
in which um, we're going to say that we don't know what theta is, and so we will put a prior on theta. Okay, so so in in, in the Bayesian schools, we we'll say, well, don't know what the value of theta is, so let's represent our uncertainty over theta with a prior. <coughs> um, so, for example, our prior on theta may be a Gaussian distribution with mean zero and covariance matrix uh, given by tau squared i. Okay? And so, um, actually, if I use s to denote my training set, well, right. So theta represents my beliefs about what the parameters are you know, in the absence of any data. So not having seen any data, Theta represents you know, what I think theta. The prior represents what I think theta is most likely to be, um, and so given the training set S in the so the Bayesian procedure, we would um, well calculate the probability, the posterior probability of my parameters given my training set, and um, let's write this on the export. So my posterior on my parameters, given my training set by Bayes' rule, this will be proportional to, you know, this. Right, so that by Bayes' rule. Um, just call it posterior. And this Distribution now represents my beliefs about what theta is after I've seen the training set. And um, when they now want to make a new prediction on the price of a new house, right, on the new input x, I would say that, well, the distribution over the possible housing prices for this, for, you know, for this new house, I'm trying to estimate the price of, say, given the size of the house, the features of the house at x, <coughs> and the training set I had previously, is going to be given by um, an integral over my parameters theta of probably of y given x comma theta and, and times the perceived distribution of theta given the training set. Okay. And um, in particular, if you want your prediction to be the expected value um, of y given the inputs x in the training set, you would say integrate over y um, times the posterior. Okay. You take an expectation of y with respect to your posterior distribution. Okay. Um, and you notice that when I was writing this down, so with the Bayesian formulation, I now start to write p of y given x comma theta because this formula now is the probability of y conditioned on the values of the random variables x and theta. So I'm no longer writing semicolon theta; I'm writing comma theta because I'm now treating theta. Um, as a random variable. So all this is somewhat abstract, but this is, um, and, and, 
it turns out, actually, let me check, are there questions about this? Let's try to make this slightly more concrete. It turns out that for many problems, um, both of these steps in the computation are difficult because if um, you know, theta is an n plus one dimensional vector, is an n plus one dimensional parameter vector, then this is an integral over an n plus one dimensional, you know, over r n plus one. And just numerically, it's very difficult to compute integrals over, um, over very high dimensional spaces. Right? So, um, Usually, this integral actually usually is hard to compute the posterior on theta, and, and it's also hard to compute this integral if theta is very high dimensional. Um, there are a few exceptions for which this can be done in closed form, but for many many learning algorithms, you know, say Bayesian logistic regression, this is this is hard to do. Um, and so, what's commonly done is to take the posterior distribution, and instead of actually computing a full posterior distribution p of theta given s. Um, we'll instead take this quantity on the right-hand side and um, just maximize this quantity on the right-hand side. So let me write this down. So um, commonly, instead of computing the full posterior distribution, we will choose the following. We'll choose the, uh, what's called the map estimate on the maxima posteriori estimate of theta, which is the most likely value of theta, most probable value of theta under your posterior distribution. And that's just argmax <coughs> p of theta. Um, and then when you need to make a prediction, right? You know, you would just um, predict, say, well, using your usual hypothesis um, and using using this map value of theta in place of, um, as, as, as the parameter vector that you choose, okay? Um, and notice the only difference between this and standard maximum likelihood estimation is that when you're choosing, you know, the mass, instead of choosing the maximum likelihood value for theta, you're instead maximizing this, which is what you had for maximum likelihood estimation, and then times this other quantity, which is the prior, right? um, And, hmm, let's see. One intuition is that if your prior <coughs> is um, theta being Gaussian with mean zero in some covariance, then for a distribution like this, most of the probability mass is close to zero, right? So this is a Gaussian centered around the point zero, and so most of your probability mass is close to zero. And so the prior distribution is of saying that you think most of the parameters should be close to zero. Um, and if you remember our discussion on feature selection, right, if, if you eliminate a feature from consideration, that's the same as setting a certain value of theta to be equal to zero. Right? So if you set theta five to be equal to zero, that's the same as you know, eliminating feature five from your hypothesis. 
And so this is a prior that drives most of the parameter values to zero, uh, to values close to zero. And you think of this as doing something analogous, if you, doing something reminiscent of feature selection. Okay. It turns out that with this formulation, the parameters won't, won't, won't actually be exactly zero, but many of the values will be close to zero. And um, I guess in pictures, um, <coughs> if you remember, I said that if you have, say, five data points and you fit a fourth order polynomial, I think that had too many bumps in it, but never mind. If you fit a if you fit a fourth order if you fit a very high polynomial to a very small data set, you can get these very large oscillations. If you use maximum likelihood estimation, right? In contrast, if you apply this sort of Bayesian regularization, um, you can actually fit to high order polynomial, but still get sort of a smoother and smoother fit to the data as you decrease tau. So as you decrease tau, you're driving the parameters to be closer and closer to zero. And that, in practice, is, is sort of hard to see, but take my word for it. As tau becomes smaller and smaller, um, the curves you tend to fit to your data also become smoother and smoother. And so you tend less and less to overfit, even, even when you're fitting a large number of parameters. Okay. Um, let's see. And. Um, one last piece of intuition that, that I'll just toss out there. You get to play with more, play with this particular set of ideas more in um, problem set three, which we'll post online later this week, I guess. Um, is that whereas maximum likelihood tries to minimize, say, this. Oops. Right. Whereas maximum likelihood for, say, linear regression turns out to be minimizing this, it turns out that if you <coughs> add this prior term there, it turns out that the optimization objective you end up optimizing turns out to be that, where you add an extra term that you know, penalizes your parameter theta as being large. And so this ends up being an algorithm that's very similar to maximum likelihood, except that you tend to keep the parameters small. And, and this has the effect. Again, it's kind of hard to see, just take my word for it, that shrinking the parameters has the effect of keeping the functions you fit um, to be smoother and less likely to overfit. Okay. Um, OK, hopefully this will make more sense when you play these ideas a bit more in the next problem set. Let me just check questions about all this. Smoothing behavior is in the case of Gaussian, right? If you put some other prior, you may actually get a different sort of effect. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so it depends on, well, most priors with most of the mass close to zero will get this effect, I guess. And, and just by convention, the Gaussian prior is what's most used the most common for models like you know, logistic regression and linear regression of generalized linear models. Um, there are a few other priors that are sometimes used, like a Laplace prior, but, but all of them will tend to have these sorts of smoothing effects. Cool. And so it turns out that um, for problems like text classification, text classification is problems with like 30,000 features or 50,000 features, 
um, where it seems like an algorithm like logistic regression would be very much prone to overfitting. Right? So imagine trying to build a spam classifier. Maybe you have 100 training examples, but you have 30,000 features, 50,000 features. Um, that seems to clearly be prone to overfitting, right? But it turns out that with this sort of Bayesian regularization, um, with, with, with actually exactly Gaussian, um, logistic regression becomes a very effective text classification algorithm with this sort of Bayesian regularization. Yeah, right. And to pick, um, and to pick either tau squared or lambda, I think the relation is lambda equals one over tau squared. But right, to pick either tau squared or lambda, you could you could use cross validation, say. Right. right. Okay. Cool. So, <clears throat> all right. That was all I wanted to say about methods for preventing overfitting. Um, what I want to do next is is just spend you know five minutes talking about um, online learning. And this is sort of a digression. Um, I say, you know, when, 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 when you're designing the syllabus of a class, I guess, sometimes there are just some ideas you want to talk about but can't find a very good place to fit in anywhere. So this is one of those ideas that must seem a bit disjointed for the rest of the class, but just want to tell you a little bit about it. Um, <coughs> okay. So here's the idea. Um, so far, all the learning algorithms we've talked about are what's called bash learning algorithms, where you're given a training set, and then you get to run your learning algorithm on the training set, and then maybe you test on some you know, other test set. Um, and there's another learning setting called online learning, in which you have to make predictions even while you're in the process of learning. So, so here's, a, here's, here's, what, here's how the problem sees. Right. I'm first going to give you x1. Um, let's say there's a classification problem. So I'm first going to give you x1. And then I'm going to ask you, you know, can you make a prediction on x1? Is, is the label 1 or 0? You've not seen any data yet. And so you make a guess. Right? You guess, you call your guess y hat 1. Um, <clears throat> and after you made your prediction, I will then reveal to you the true label y1. Okay? And not having seen any data before, your odds of getting the first one right are only 50%, right? if, you, if you guess randomly. Um, and then I'll show you x2. And then I'll ask you, can you make a prediction on x2? And so you now maybe able to make a slightly more educated guess and call that y hat 2. And after you've made your guess, I'll reveal the true label to you and so on. Okay. Then I'll show you x3. And then you make your guess. And learning proceeds as follows. Um, so this is a different model of machine learning than batch learning. And it models settings where um, you have to keep learning even as you're making predictions. Okay? So, so um, I don't know, imagine setting a website and, and you have users coming in. And as the first user comes in, you need to start making predictions already about what the user likes or dislikes. And there's only, you know, as, as you're making predictions, you get to show more and more training examples. So in online learning, what we care about is the total online error. Um, which is sum from i equals 1 to m, say, if you get a sequence of m examples altogether, indicator y has i not equal to yi. Okay, so the total online error is the um, total number of mistakes you make on a sequence of examples like this. Um, it turns out that, you know, 
many of the learning algorithms you have, actually pretty much all the learning algorithms you've learned about can be applied to the setting. Um, one thing you could do is, well, when you're asked to make a prediction on y hat 3, right, one, one, one simple thing you could do is, well, you've seen some number of training examples up to this point, so you can just take your learning algorithm and run it on the examples, um, you know, leading up to y hat 3. So just run the learning algorithm on all the examples you've seen previous to being asked to make a prediction on a certain example, and then use your learning algorithm to make a prediction on the next example. Um, it turns out that there are also algorithms, especially the algorithms that we saw that could use stochastic gradient descent, that you know can be adapted very nicely to this. Um, so, as a concrete example, um, if you remember the perceptron algorithm, say, <coughs> right, you would um, say initialize the parameter theta to be equal to zero. And then, after seeing the i-th training example, um, you'd update the parameters <coughs> you know, using, using, you've seen this rule all the times now, right? Using the standard um, perceptron learning rule. Well, the same thing, for if, if you were using logistic regression, you can then, um, again, after seeing each training example, just run, you know, essentially run one step of stochastic gradient descent, or stochastic gradient descent, on just the example you um, saw. Okay? And so, um, <clears throat> the reason I fit this into the sort of, quote, learning theory section of this class was because it turns out that sometimes you can prove fairly amazing results um, on your total online error using algorithms like these. Um, I, won't actually I, I, don't, I don't actually want to spend the time in, in the main lecture to prove this. But for example, you can prove that um, when you use the perceptron algorithm, then even when the features xi um, may be infinite dimensional feature vectors, like, like we sort of saw right, for support vector machines, and sometimes infinite feature dimensional vectors when you use kernel representations. Okay? So it turns out you can prove that when you use the perceptron algorithm, even when the data is maybe extremely high dimensional, it seems like you'd be prone to overfitting, right? Um, you can prove that so long as the positive and the negative examples are, um, uh, are separated by a margin, right? so long as um, in this infinite dimensional space, so long as you know there is some margin gamma separating the positive and negative examples, um, you can prove that the perceptron algorithm will converge to a hypothesis that perfectly separates the positive and negative examples. Okay, and and so after seeing only a finite number of examples, it will converge to to, to a decision boundary that perfectly separates the positive and negative examples, even though you may be in an infinite dimensional space. So um, let's see. The proof itself would take me sort of almost an entire lecture to do, and 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 there are sort of other things that I want to do more than that. Um, so you want to see the proof of this yourself is actually written up in the lecture notes that I post online. Um, for the purposes of this class, the syllabus, the, the the proof of this result, you can treat this as optional reading, and by that I mean you know it it won't appear on the midterm, and and you won't be asked about this specifically on the problem sets. Um, but um, I thought it'd be, I, I know some of you are curious after the previous lecture for why you can prove that 
you know, SVMs can have um, bounded VC dimension, even even in these infinite dimensional spaces. And how do you prove things in these? How do you prove loading theory results in these infinite dimensional feature spaces? And so, the perceptron bound that I just talked about was sort of the simplest instance I know of that you can sort of read in like half an hour and understand it. So, if you're interested, uh, there are lecture notes online for how this perceptron bound was actually proved. It's a very pretty result. You prove it in like a page or so. So go ahead and take a look at that if you're interested. Okay, <clears throat> but regardless of the, the theoretical results, um, you know the online learning setting is something that you that that comes up reasonably often, and so just these algorithms based on stochastic gradient descent often work very well for them. Okay, any questions about this before I move on? All right, cool. So. The last thing I want to do today, and was the majority of today's lecture, actually, can I switch to the PowerPoint slides, please? Is um, I actually want to spend most of today's lecture so talking about advice for applying different machine learning algorithms. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, right now, all of you have a, I think, a good understanding of really the most powerful tools known to humankind in machine learning, right? And um, what I want to do today is give you some advice on how to apply them really powerfully. Um, because, you know, the same tool, it turns out that, you know, take the same machine learning tool, say logistic regression, and you can ask two different people to apply it to the same problem. And um, sometimes one person will do an amazing job and work amazingly well, and the second person will sort of not really get it to work, even though it's exactly the same algorithm, right? And so um, what I want to do today, and the rest of the time I have today, is try to convey to you, you know, some of the methods for how to make sure you, wanna, you really know how to get these learning algorithms to work well in problems. Um, <clears throat> so just some caveats on what I'm going to, I guess, talk about in, in the rest of today's lecture. Um, some of today's, some of what I'm going to talk about is actually not very mathematical, but there's also some of the hardest most conceptually most difficult material in this class to understand. Right? So this is um, not mathematical, but this is not easy. And uh, I'll say, it's caveat, some of what I'll say today is debatable. <laughs> I think most of the good machine learning people will agree with most of what I say, but maybe not everything I say. Um, and some of what I'll say is also not good advice for doing machine learning research. And I'll say more about this later. Um, what I'm focusing on today is advice for how to just get stuff to work. If you're working in a company and you want to deliver a product, if you're you know, building a system and you just want your machine learning system to work. Okay? So what I'm about to say today isn't great advice if you go to invent a new machine learning algorithm, but this is advice for how to make a machine learning algorithm work and, and, you know, and deploy a working system. Um, so three, three key ideas I'm gonna talk about are one, um, diagnostics of debugging learning algorithms. Um, second, I just want to talk briefly about error analyses and ablative analysis. And um, third, I want to talk about just advice about how to get started on a machine learning uh, problem. And one theme that will come up later is, um, turns out you've, you've, you've heard about premature optimization right, in, in writing software. This is when um, someone over-designs from the start, when someone is writing a piece of code and they choose a subroutine to optimize heavily and maybe write a subroutine in an assembly or something. And that's often, and, and, and many of us have been guilty of premature optimization where we're trying to get a piece of code to run faster 
And we choose part of a piece of code and re-implement re it in assembly and really tune and get it to run really quickly. And it turned out that wasn't a bottleneck in the code at all, right? And we call that premature optimization. And in like our undergraduate programming classes, we warn people all the time not to do premature optimization. And people still do it all the time, right? Um, and <clears throat> turns out a very similar thing happens in building machine learning systems that many people are often guilty of what I call premature statistical optimization, where they heavily optimize part of a machine learning system um, and that turns out not to be the important piece. Okay. So I'll talk about that later as well. So let's first talk about debugging learning algorithms. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, <coughs> as a motivating example, let's say you want to build an anti-spam system. Unless you've carefully chosen um, you know, a small set of 100 words to use as features. Right? So instead of using 50,000 words, you've chosen a small set of 100 features to use for your anti-spam system. Um, and let's say you implement Bayesian logistic regression, implement a gradient descent, and you get 20% test error, which is, which is unacceptably high. Right? So um, this is Bayesian logistic regression. It's, sort of, it's just like massive likelihood, but you know, with that additional lambda squared term, and, and uh, we're maximizing rather than minimizing. So, so there's a minus lambda theta squared instead of plus lambda theta squared. So the question is, um, you implemented your Bayesian logistic regression algorithm, and you test on your test set, and you got unacceptably high error. So what do you do next? Right? Um, <clears throat> so you know, one thing you could do is think about the ways you could improve this algorithm. And this, this is probably what most people will do. So, well, let's sit down and think what could have gone wrong. And then we try to improve the algorithm. Well, obviously, having more training data can only help. So what you do is try to get more training examples. Um, maybe you suspect that even 100 features was too many. So you might try to get a smaller set of features. Um, what's more common is you might suspect your features aren't good enough. So you might spend some time looking at the email headers, so you can figure out better features for you know, finding spam emails or whatever. Um, right. And, and, right, so just sit around and come up with better features, uh, such as for email headers. Um, you might also suspect that gradient descent hasn't quite converged yet, and so let's, let's try running gradient descent a bit longer to see if that works. And clearly that can't hurt, right? Let's, let's run gradient descent for longer. Um, or maybe you remember, you know, you remember hearing from the class that maybe Newton's method converges better. So let's try that instead. Um, we want to tune the value for lambda. I'm not sure if that was the right thing. Um, or maybe you even want to try an SVM because maybe you think an SVM might work better than logistic regression. So I only listed eight things here. But you can imagine if you're actually sitting down building a machine learning system, the options to you are endless. You can think of, you know, hundreds of ways to improve a learning system. Um, and some of these things, like, well, getting more training examples, surely that's going to help. So, so that seems like it's a good use of your time, right? Um, and it turns out that this approach of picking ways to improve the learning algorithm and picking one and going for it, um, it might work in the sense that it may eventually get you to a working system, but often it's very time consuming. And I think it's often a largely, largely a matter of luck, whether you end up fixing what the problem is. In particular, these eight improvements all fix very different problems. And some of them will be fixing problems that you don't have. Um, and if you can rule out six of eight of these, say, you could, if, if, if by somehow looking at the problem more deeply, you can figure out which one of these eight things is actually the right thing to do, you can save yourself a lot of time. 
So let's see how we go about doing that. Um, the people in industry and in research that, that I see that are really good will not go and try to change the learning algorithm randomly. There, there are lots of things that will obviously improve your learning algorithm, but the, pro the problem is there are so many of them, it's hard to know what to do. So the people I know that are really good will instead <coughs> run various diagnostics to figure out what the problem is and then fix what the problem is. Okay. So for our motivating story, right, we said, let's say Bayesian logistic regression test error was 20%, which, which, which let's say is unacceptably high. Um, and let's suppose you suspect that the problem is either um, overfitting, uh, so it's high bias, or you suspect that you know, maybe you have too few features to classify spam. So it's, um, oh, excuse me, I think I um, wrote that wrong. Let's suppose you have, so let's forget, forget the text. Let's, suppose you suspect the problem is either high bias or high variance. And some of the text here doesn't make sense. Um, <clears throat> and you want to know if um, you're overfitting, which would be high variance, or if you have too few features to classify spam, which is high bias. I have those two reverse, sorry. Okay. So how can you figure out whether the problem is one of high bias or high variance? So it turns out there's a simple diagnostic you can look at. They'll tell you whether the problem is high bias or high variance. Um, if you remember the cartoon we'd seen previously for high variance problems, when you have high variance, the training error will be much lower than the test error. Right? When you have a high variance problem, that's when you're fitting your training set very well. That's when you're fitting you know, a 10 folder polynomial to 11 data points. Right. And that's when you're just fitting the data set very well. And so your training error will be much lower than test error. And in contrast, if you have high bias, that's when your training error will also be high. Right. That's when your data is quadratic, say, but you're fitting a linear function to it, and so you aren't even fitting your training set well. So <coughs> just in cartoons, I guess, um, this, is a this is what a typical learning curve for high variance looks like. Um, on the horizontal axis, I'm plotting the training set size, m, right? And the vertical axis, I'm plotting the error. And so, um, let's see. You know, as you increase, if, if you have a high variance problem, um, you notice that as the training set size, m increases, your test set error will keep on decreasing. And so this sort of suggests that, well, if you can increase the training set size even further, maybe if you extrapolate the green curve out, maybe the test set error will decrease even further. Um, another thing that's useful to plot here uh, is, um, let's say the red horizontal line is the desired performance you're trying to reach. Another useful thing to plot is actually the training error. Right? And it turns out that um, your training error will actually grow as a function of the training set size. Um, because the larger your training set, the harder it is to fit you know, your training set perfectly. Right, so, so, so this is just a cartoon, don't take it too seriously. But in general, your training error will actually grow as a function of your training set size. Because small training sets, if you have one data point, it's really easy to fit that perfectly. But if you have 10,000 data points, it's much harder to fit that perfectly. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so another diagnostic for high variance, and, and the one that I tend to use more, is to just look at training versus test error. And if there's a large gap between them, then this suggests that you know, getting more training data may allow you to help close that gap. Okay. So this is um, what the cartoon will look like when, in, in the case of high variance. Um, 
this is what the cartoon looks like for high bias, right? Um, vertical learning curve, you see that the curve for test error has flattened out already, and so this is a sign that you know, if you get more training examples, if you, if you extrapolate this curve further to the right, um, it's maybe not likely to go down much further. And this is a property of high bias, that getting more training data won't necessarily help. Um, but again, to me, the more useful diagnostic is um, if you plot training error as well. If you look at your training error as well as your you know, holdout test set error, um, if you find that even your training error is high, then that's a sign that getting more training, more training data is not going to help. Um, in fact, <clears throat> you think about it, um, training error grows as a function of your training set size. And so if your training error is already above your level of desired performance, then getting even more training data is not going to reduce your training error down to the desired level of performance, right? Because your, your training error sort of only gets worse as you get more and more training examples. So if you extrapolate further to the right, it's not like this blue line will come back down to the level of desired performance, right? It's just stay up there, okay? Um, <clears throat> so for me personally, I, I actually, when, when I look at the curve, like, like the green curve on, on test error, I actually personally tend to find it very difficult to tell if the curve is still going down or if it's asymptote. Sometimes you can tell, but very often it's somewhat ambiguous. Um, so for me personally, the diagnostic I tend to use the most often to tell if I have a bias problem or a variance problem is to look at training and test error and to see if they're very close together or if they're relatively far apart. Okay. And so going back to the list of fixes, um, look at the first fix. Getting more training examples is a way to fix high variance. Right? If you have high variance problem, getting more training examples will help. Um, trying a smaller set of features that also fixes high variance. <coughs> right? um, trying a larger set of features or adding email features, these are solutions that fix high bias. Right? So if high bias being if your hypothesis was too simple, if you didn't have enough features. Okay? And so Quite often, you see people working on machine learning problems, um, and they'll remember that getting more training examples helps. And so you know, they build a learning system, build an anti-spam system, and it doesn't work. And then they go off and spend lots of time and money and effort collecting more training data, because they'll say, oh, well, getting more training data has obviously got to help. Um, but if they had a high bias problem in the first place and not a high variance problem, it's entirely possible to spend three months or six months collecting more and more training data, not realizing that it couldn't possibly help. And so this actually happens a lot you to, you know, in Silicon Valley and companies. This happens a lot. There'll often be people building various machine learning systems, and they'll often, you often see people spending six months working on fixing a learning algorithm, and you could have told them six months ago that, you know, that couldn't possibly have helped, but, but because they didn't know what the problem was, was they easily spend six months trying to invent new features or something. And, and, and this is, you, you see this surprisingly often, it's somewhat depressing. You could have gone to them and told them, I could have told you six months ago that this is just not going to help. And the six months is not a joke, you actually see this. Um, <clears throat> 
And in contrast, if you actually figure out the problem is one of high bias or high variance, then you can rule out two of these solutions and save yourself many months of fruitless effort. Okay. Um, I just want to talk about these four at the bottom as well, but before I, before I move on, let me just check if the questions about, about what I've talked about so far. Yeah. Okay, cool. So <coughs> bias versus variance is, is one thing that comes up often. There's bias versus variance is one common diagnostic. Um, and so for, for other machine learning problems, it's often up to your own ingenuity to figure out your own diagnostics to figure out what's wrong. Right? So, so if a machine learning algorithm isn't working, very often it's up to you to figure out, you know, to construct your own test. Like, do you look at the difference between trading and test error or do you look at something else? Um, it's often up to your own ingenuity to construct your own diagnostics to figure out what's going on. Um, what I want to do is go for another example. Right? And this, one, this one's slightly more contrived, but I'll illustrate another common question that comes up, and another one of the most common uh, issues that comes up in, in applying learning algorithms. So in this example, it's slightly more contrived, let's say you implement Bayesian logistic regression, and you get 2% um, error on spam mail and 2% error on non-spam mail. Right? So it's rejecting, you know, 2% of, um, it's rejecting 98% of your spam mail, which is fine, so 2% of all spam gets through, which is fine but um, is also rejecting 2% of your good email, 2% right? of the email from your friends, and that's, that's unacceptably high, let's say. Um, <clears throat> and let's say that um, a support vector machine using a linear kernel gets 10% error on spam and 0.01% error on non-spam, which is more of the acceptable performance you want. And let's say for, for, for the sake of this example, let's say you're trying to build an anti-spam system, right? Let's say that um, you really want to deploy logistic regression um, to your customers because of computational efficiency or because you need to retrain o overnight every day and because logistic regression just runs more easily and more quickly or something. Okay? So let's say you want to deploy logistic regression but it's just not working that well. So question is, um, what do you do next? So it turns out that this, the issue that comes up here, the one, one, one other common question that comes up is, um, you, the question of, is the algorithm converging? So you might suspect that maybe um, the problem with logistic regression is, is just not converging. You need to, maybe you need to run familiarations. Um, it turns out that, again, if you look at the optimization objective, say logistic regression is, let's say, optimizing J of theta, it actually turns out that if you look at the optimization objective as a function of the number of iterations, <coughs> excuse me, um, if you look at this curve, you know, it sort of looks like it's going up, but it sort of looks like it's asymptote. And when you look at these curves, it's often very hard to tell if the curve has already flattened out. Right? You, you look at these curves a lot. So you can ask, well, has the algorithm converged? If you look at the J of theta like this, it's often very hard to tell. You could run this 10 times as long and see if it's flattened out. And you can run this 10 times as long, and it'll often still look like maybe it's going up very slowly or something. Right? Um, so can we come up with a better diagnostic for whether logistic regression has converged than looking at this curve? Um, the other question you might wonder, the other, the other thing you might suspect is a problem is, um, are you optimizing the right function? So um, what you care about, right, in spam, say, <coughs> is um, 
a weighted accuracy function like that. So A of theta is you know, sum over your examples of some weight times whether you got it right. And so um, the weight may be higher for non-spam than for spam mail. Because you, might, you care about getting your predictions correct for spam email much more than non-spam mail. Say. So let's say A of theta is the um, optimization objective that you really care about. Um, but Bayesian logistic regression instead optimizes the quantity like that. Right? It's just sort of maximum likelihood thing, and then with this uh, uh, two-norm you know, penalty thing that we saw previously. You might be wondering, is this the right optimization function to be optimizing? Okay, and, or should, do, do I maybe need to change the value of a lambda um, to change this parameter? Or um, should I maybe really be switching to a support vector machine optimization objective? Okay. Does that make sense? So, 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 so the second diagnostic I want to talk about is, um, let's say you want to figure out, is the algorithm converging? Is the optimization of algorithm converging? Or is the problem with the optimization objective I chose in the first place? Okay. So here's the diagnostic you can use. Um, let me let, right, so to con just reiterate the story, right? Let's say an SVM outperforms Bayesian logistic regression, but you really want to deploy Bayesian logistic regression for your problem. Um, let me let theta subscript SVM be the parameters learned by an SVM, and I'll let theta subscript BLR be the parameters learned by Bayesian logistic regression. So the optimization objective you care about is this you know, weighted accuracy criteria that I talked about just now. And um, the support vector machine outperforms Bayesian logistic regression. And so you know, the weighted accuracy on the support vector machine parameters is better than the weighted accuracy for Bayesian logistic regression. So um, further, Bayesian logistic regression tries to optimize an optimization objective like that, which I've denoted J of theta. And so the diagnostic I'll choose to use is to see if J of SVM is bigger than or less than J of BLR. Okay, so I explain this on the next slide. So we know two facts. We know that, well, we know one fact. We know that the weighted accuracy of the support vector machine, right, is bigger than this weighted accuracy of Bayesian logistic regression. So in order for me to figure out whether Bayesian logistic regression is converging or whether I'm just optimizing the wrong objective function, the diagnostic I'm going to use is I'm going to check if this equality holds true. Okay, so let me explain this. So in case one, right, um, <clears throat> it's just those two equations copied over. In case one, let's say that J of SVM is indeed greater than J of BLR. Uh, J of theta SVM is greater than J of theta BLR. But we know that Bayesian logistic regression was trying to maximize J of theta. Right? That's the definition of Bayesian logistic regression. So this means that um, theta, the value of theta output by Bayesian logistic regression actually fails to maximize J because the support vector machine actually returned the value of theta that you know, does a better job out maximizing J. And so this tells me that Bayesian logistic regression didn't actually maximize J correctly. And so the problem is with the optimization algorithm. The optimization algorithm hasn't converged. Right? 
The other case is as follows, where um, J of theta SVM is less than or equal to J of theta BLR. Okay? In this case, what does that mean? <clears throat> this means that Bayesian logistic regression actually attains a higher value for the optimization objective J than does the support vector machine. But the support vector machine, which does worse on your optimization problem, actually does better on the weighted accuracy measure. So what this means is that something that does worse on your optimization objective, on J, can actually do better on the weighted accuracy objective. And this really means that maximizing J of theta you know, doesn't really correspond that well to maximizing your weighted accuracy criteria. And therefore, this tells you that J of theta is maybe the wrong optimization objective to be maximizing. Right? So just maximizing J of theta is just wasn't a good objective to be choosing if you care about the weighted accuracy. Okay. You raise your hand if, if this makes sense. Okay, cool, great. <coughs> Excuse me. So that tells us whether the problem is with the optimization objective um, or whether it's with the objective function. And so going back to this slide, the, the, the eight fixes we had, you notice that um, if you run gradient descent for more iterations, that fixes the optimization algorithm. You try Newton's method, fixes the optimization algorithm. Whereas using a different value for lambda, in that lambda times norm of theta squared thing, right, in, the, in the objective, fixes the optimization objective. And changing to an SVM is also another way of trying to fix the optimization objective. Okay? And so, um, once again, you actually see this quite often that you see very often people will um, have a problem with the optimization objective and be working harder and harder to fix the optimization algorithm. That's, that, that's another very common pattern. That The problem is in the formulation of J of theta, but often you see people you know, just running more and more iterations of gradient descent, like trying Newton's method, then trying conjugate gradient, then trying more and more crazy optimization algorithms, whereas the problem was you know, optimizing J of theta wasn't going to fix the problem at all. Okay? So there's another example of when <clears throat> this, these sorts of diagnostics will help you figure out whether you should be fixing the optimization algorithm or fixing the optimization objective. Okay? Um, let me think how much time I have. Hmm. Let's see. Well, okay, yeah, fine. Let's do this. Um, it's just, it's just show you one last example of a diagnostic. This is one that came up in you know, my students in my work on, on flying helicopters. Um, <clears throat> this one actually, <clears throat> this example is, is, the mo is the most complex of the three examples I'm going to do today. Um, I'm going to do it somewhat quickly. And um, this actually draws on reinforcement learning, which is something that I'm not going to talk about until towards close to the end of the quarter. But this is sort of just a more complicated example of a diagnostic I'm going to go over. Um, what I'll do is probably go over this fairly quickly, and then after we've talked about reinforcement learning in the class, I'll probably actually come back and redo this exact same example, because you understand it more deeply then. Okay? So, um, some of you know that my students and I fly autonomous helicopters. So, how do you get a machine learning algorithm to design a controller for a helicopter? Um, <clears throat> this is what we do, right? 
The first step was to build a simulator for a helicopter. So you know, there's a screenshot of our simulator. Um, this is just like a this is like a joystick simulator. You can fly a helicopter in a simulation. And then we choose a cost function. It's actually called a reward function. But for this, actually, I'll call it a cost function. Say j of theta is you know the expected squared error in your helicopter's position. Okay, so it's j of theta is maybe it's called expected squared error, which is a squared error. And then we run a reinforcement learning algorithm. You, you, you learn about RL algorithms in a few weeks. You run a reinforcement learning algorithm um, in your simulator to try to minimize this cost function, to try to minimize the squared error of you know, how well you're controlling your helicopter's position. Okay? Um, your reinforcement learning algorithm will output some parameters, which I'm denoting theta subscript RL. And um, you then go use that to fly your helicopter. So suppose you run this learning algorithm, and um, you get out a set of controller parameters, theta subscript RL, that gives much worse performance than a human pilot. Then what do you do next? And in particular, you know, corresponding to the three steps above, there are three natural things you can try. Right? You can try to, uh, well, the bottom of the slide got chopped off. You can try to improve the simulator. Um, maybe you think your simulator isn't that accurate. You need to capture the aerodynamic effects more, more accurately. You need to capture the airflow and the turbulence effects around the helicopter more accurately. Um, maybe you need to modify the cost function. Maybe a squared error isn't cutting it. Maybe what a human pilot does isn't just optimizing squared error, but it's something more subtle. Or maybe the reinforcement learning algorithm isn't working. Maybe it's not quite converging or something. Okay. So these are the diagnostics that I actually use, that my students and I actually use to figure out what's going on. Actually, why don't you just think about this for a second and think what you do, and then, and then I'll go on and tell you what we do. So let me talk about how we do this and see whether it's the same as, as yours or not. And if you have a better idea than I do, let me know. And I'll let you try it on, on my helicopter. Um, <clears throat> so here's a reasoning that, that I once went through, right? So yeah, let's say the controller output by our reinforcement learning algorithm does poorly. Um, well, suppose the following three things hold true. Suppose the contrary, I guess. Suppose that. Um, the helicopter simulator is accurate, so let's say we have an accurate model of a helicopter. Um, and let's suppose that the reinforcement learning algorithm you know, correctly controls the helicopter in, in simulation. So we tend to run the learning algorithm in simulation so that you know, the learning algorithm can crash the helicopter and it's fine, right? So suppose the reinforcement learning algorithm cor correctly controls the helicopter so as to minimize the cost function j of theta. And let's suppose that 
minimizing j of theta does indeed correspond to accurate or the correct autonomous flight. If all of these things held true, then that means that um, the parameters theta RL should actually fly well on, 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 on my real helicopter. Right? And so the fact that the learned controlled parameters theta RL does not fly well on my helicopter that sort of means that one of these three assumptions must be wrong. And I'd like to figure out which of these three assumptions was wrong. Okay. So, <clears throat> these are the diagnostics we use. First one is, um, we look at the controller and see if it even flies well in simulation. Right? So we'll simulate the helicopter that we did the learning on. And so if the learning algorithm flies well in the simulator, but it doesn't fly well on my real helicopter, then that tells me the problem is probably in the simulator, right? That my simulator predicts the helicopter's controller will fly well, but it doesn't actually fly well in real life. So clearly the problem is in the simulator. And we should spend our efforts improving the accuracy of our simulator. Um, otherwise, let me, let me write theta subscript human be the human control policy, right? So, Let's go ahead and ask a human to fly the helicopter. It could be in a simulator, it could be in real life. And let's measure you know, the mean squared error of the human pilot's flight. Right? And let's see if the human pilot does better or worse than the learned controller in terms of optimizing this objective function j of theta. Okay? So if the human does worse, if, if even very good human pilot um, attains a worse value on my optimization objective, on, on my cost function, than my learning algorithm, um, then the problem is in the reinforcement learning algorithm. Right? Because my reinforcement learning algorithm was trying to minimize j of theta, but a human actually attains a lower value for j of theta than does my algorithm. And so that tells me that clearly my algorithm is not managing to minimize JF theta, and that tells me the problems in reinforcement learning algorithm. <coughs> and finally, if JF theta, if, if the human actually attains a larger value for theta, excuse me, if the human actually attains a larger value for JF theta, if the human actually has you know, larger mean squared error for the helicopter position, then does my reinforcement learning algorithms. But I like, but I like the way the human flies much better than my reinforcement learning algorithm. So if that holds true, then clearly the problem is in the cost function, right? Because the human does worse on my cost function, but flies much better than my learning algorithm. And so that means the problem is in the cost function. It means, um, oh, excuse me, I meant minimizing it, not maximizing it. Let's type on the slide. Because that means that minimizing the cost function, um, my learning algorithm does a better job minimizing the cost function, but doesn't fly as well as a human pilot. So that tells you that Minimizing the cost function doesn't correspond to good autonomous flight. And what you should do is go back and see if you can change j of theta. Okay. So um, and so for various reinforcement learning problems, you know if something doesn't work, um, I mean often reinforcement learning algorithms just work. But but when they don't work, these are the sorts of diagnostics we use to figure out should we be focusing on the simulator, on changing the cost function, or on changing the reinforcement learning algorithm. Yeah. And and um, Again, if you don't know which of your three problems it is, it's entirely possible you know, to spend two years or whatever changing 
building a better simulator for your helicopter. But it turns out that modeling helicopter aerodynamics was an active area of research. There are people you know, writing entire PhD theses on it still. So it's entirely possible to go out and spend six years and write a PhD thesis and build a much better helicopter simulator, but if fixing the wrong problem, it's not going to help. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so quite often, you need to come up with your own diagnostics to figure out what's happening in an algorithm when something is going wrong. Um, and and I, unfortunately, I don't, I, 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 I don't know of what I've described are sort of maybe some of the most common diagnostics that I've used that I've seen you know, to be useful for many problems. But very often, you need to come up with your own for your own specific learning problem. Um, and just to point out that even when the learning algorithm is working well, um, it's often a good idea to run diagnostics like the ones I talked about to make sure you really understand what's going on. Right? And this is useful for a couple of reasons. One is that diagnostics like these um, <clears throat> will often help you to understand your application problem better. So some of you will you know, graduate from Stanford and go on to get some amazingly high-paid job to apply machine learning algorithms to some application problem of you know, significant economic interests. Right? And um, if you end up working on one specific important machine learning application for many months or even for years, um, one of the most valuable things for you personally will, will be for you to get in, for you personally, to get an intuitive understanding of what works and what doesn't work in your problem. So, so, I mean, so right now in industry, in Silicon Valley, or around the world, there are many companies with important machine learning problems, and there are often people working on the same machine learning problem you know, for many months or for years on end. Um, and when you're doing that, when you're solving a really important problem using learning algorithms, one of the most valuable things is just your own personal intuitive understanding of the problem. Okay? Um, and diagnostics like the sorts that I talked about will be one way for you to get a better and better understanding of these problems. Um, turns out, by the way, <clears throat> there's sometimes Silicon Valley companies that outsource their machine learning. So there's sometimes, you know, whatever, a company in Silicon Valley and they'll, you know, hire a firm in New York to run all their learning algorithms for them. And I, I guess I'm not a businessman, I, I, I personally think that's often a terrible idea because um, if your expertise, if your understanding of your data is given you know, to an outsourced agency, then, then if you don't maintain that expertise, if there's a problem you really care about, then it'll be your own you know, understanding of the problem that you build up over months that'll be really valuable. And if that knowledge is outsourced, you don't get to keep that knowledge yourself. I personally think that's a terrible idea. But I'm not a businessman, but I'm just seeing people do that a lot. And just, um, <clears throat> let's see. Another reason for running diagnostics like these is um, actually for writing research papers. Right? So um, diagnostics and error analyses, which I'll talk about in a minute, often help to convey insight about the problem and help justify your research claims. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So for example, rather than writing a research paper, say, that says, you know, oh, look, here's an algorithm that works, or I built this helicopter that flies, or whatever, it's often much more interesting to say, here's an algorithm that works, and it works because of a specific component X. And moreover, here's a diagnostic, which is a justification that shows X was the thing that fixed this problem that that's what really made it work. Okay? So that leads me um, into a discussion on error analysis, which is, which is often good machine learning practice. Um, this is a way for understanding what your sources of errors are. So um, if I talk about ana error analyses, let me just check questions about this. 
Oh, uh, don't know. Let's see. Ah, we've flown so many times. The 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 thing that is most difficult in helicopter is actually building a very. I don't know. It changes all the time. Quite often, it's actually the simulator. Building an accurate simulator for helicopter is very hard. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so for our analyses. Um, this is a way for figuring out what is working in your algorithm and what isn't working. Um, I'm going to talk about two specific, two specific examples. Um, so there are many learning, there are many sort of AI systems, many machine learning systems that combine many different components into a pipeline. Right? So here's, a, here's sort of a contrived example, but it's not dissimilar in many ways from, from the actual machine learning systems you see. So let's say you want to um, <clears throat> recognize people from images. This is a picture of one of my friends. Um, so you take this input a camera image, say, and, and you often run it through a long pipeline. So for example, the first thing you might do may be pre-process the image, remove the background. So remove the background. And then um, you run a face detection algorithm, some machine learning algorithm to detect people's faces, right? And then, you know, let's say you want to recognize the identity of the person, right? This is your application. Um, and you then segment out the eyes, segment out the nose, and have different learning algorithms to detect the mouth and so on. I know, she might not want to be my friend after she sees this. And then having found all these features based on you know, what the nose looks like, what the eyes look like, whatever, you then feed all the features into logistic regression algorithm, and your logistic regression or softmax regression or whatever will tell you um, the identity of this person. Okay? Um, so this is what error analysis is. You have a long, complicated pipeline com combining you know, many machine learning components. Many of these would be using learning algorithms. And so it's often very useful to figure out how much of your error can be attributed to each of these components. Right? <coughs> so what we'll do in a typical error analysis procedure is we'll repeatedly plug in the ground truth for each component and see how the accuracy changes. So what I mean by that is, um, figure on the bottom left, uh, bottom right, let's say the overall accuracy of the system is 85%. Right? Then I'd like to know where my 15% of error comes from. And so what I'll do is, I'll go to my test set, <coughs> and I'll actually code in, I'll, instead of, I'll actually you know, implement my correct um, uh, background removal. So I actually go in and give, it, give my algorithm what is the correct background versus foreground. If I do that, let's color that blue to denote that I'm giving that the ground truth data in the test set, let's say my accuracy increases 85.1%. Okay? And now I'm going and you know, give my algorithm the ground truth face detection output. So I'll go in and actually on my test set, I'll just tell the algorithm where the face is. And if I do that, let's say my algorithm's accuracy increases to 91% and so on. And then I'll go through each of these components and just give it um, <clears throat> the ground truth label for each of the components. Because say, like the nose segmentation algorithm is trying to figure out where the nose is. I just go in and tell it where the nose is so that it doesn't have to figure that out. And as I do this for one component through the other, you know, I end up giving it the correct output label and end up with 100% accuracy. And now you can look at this table. I'm sorry, this is cut off on the bottom. It just says logistic regression 100%. Now you can look at this table and um, see you know, how much getting the ground truth labels for each of these components could help boost your final performance. In particular, if you look on this table, you notice that 
Um, when I added the face detection ground truth, my performance jumped from 85.1% accuracy to 91% accuracy. Right? So this tells me that if only I can get better face detection, maybe I can boost my accuracy by 6%. Um, <clears throat> whereas in contrast, when I, you know, say, plugged in better, um, I don't know, background removal, my accuracy improved from 85 to 85.1%. And so this sort of diagnostic also tells you that if you go to improve the system, it's probably a waste of your time to, to try to improve your background subtraction. Because even if you got the ground truth, this gives you at most 0.1% accuracy. Whereas you could do better face detection, maybe there's a much larger potential for gains there. Okay? So this sort of diagnostic, again, um, <clears throat> is very useful because if you go to improve the system, there are so many different pieces you can easily choose to spend the next three months on. Right? And choosing the right piece um, is critical. And this sort of diagnostic tells you what's the piece that, that may actually be worth your time to work on. Um, there's sort of another type of analysis that's sort of the opposite to what I just talked about. The error analysis I just talked about tries to explain the difference between the current performance and perfect performance. Whereas uh, this sort of ablative analysis tries to explain the difference between some baseline, some really bad performance, and your current performance. So for this example, let's suppose you built a very good anti-spam classifier by adding lots of fe clever features to your logistic regression algorithm. Right? So you added features for spelling correction, for you know, sender host features, for email header features, email text parser features, JavaScript parser features, features from embedded images, and so on. So now let's see a pretty decent system, and you want to figure out you know, how well did each of these, how much did each of these components actually contribute. Um, maybe you want to write a research paper and claim this was the piece that made the big difference. Can you actually document that claim and justify it? So in the ablative analysis, um, here's what we do. So in, in this example, let's say that simple logistic regression without any of your clever improvements get 94% performance. And you want to figure out what accounts for your improvement from 94 to 99.9% .9 performance. So in ablative analysis, um, instead of sort of adding components one at a time, we'll instead remove components one at a time to see how it breaks. So <clears throat> start off with your overall system, which is 99% accuracy. And then we'll remove spelling correction and see how much performance drops. Then we'll remove the sender host features and see how much performance drops, and so on. <coughs> and so, in this contrived example, um, you see that, I guess, the biggest drop occurred when you remove the text parser features. And so, you can then make a credible case that, you know, the text parser features were what really made the biggest difference here. Okay? And you can also tell, for instance, that, um, <coughs> I don't know, removing the sender host features on this line, right, performance drop from 99 98.9%. And so this also means that in case you want to get rid of the sender host features to speed up computation or something, that would be a good candidate for elimination. Okay? Are there any guarantees that if you shuffle around the order in which you drop those features that you'll get the same? Yeah, no, yeah it's a just a question. What if you shuffle the order in which you remove things? The answer is no. There's no guarantee you get a similar result. Um, so in practice, <clears throat> sometimes there's a fairly natural ordering uh, for, for both types of analyses, the error analyses and the ablative analyses. Sometimes there's a fairly natural ordering in which to add things or remove things. Um, sometimes there isn't. And, and quite often you either choose one ordering and just go for it. Or, um, and, and don't think of these analyses as sort of formulas that are cast in stone. You feel free to invent your own as well. Like, you know, you know, like one, one of the things that's done quite often is 
take the overall system and just remove one and then put it back, then remove a different one and then put it back. Um, so all of these things are done. Okay. So the very last thing I want to talk about is sort of just general advice for how to get started on a learning problem. So here's a cartoon description on maybe two broad approaches to get started on a learning problem. Um, first one is you can carefully design your system. So you may spend a long time designing exactly the right features, collecting the right data set, and designing the right algorithmic structure. Then you implement it and hope it works. Right? Um, the benefit of this sort of approach is you get maybe nicer, maybe more scalable algorithms, um, and maybe you come up with new elegant learning algorithms. And if your goal is to you know, contribute to basic research in machine learning, if your goal is to invent new machine learning algorithms, this process of sitting down and think, thinking deeply about the problem, you know, that, that is sort of the right way to go about it. Just think deeply about a problem and invent new solutions. Um, <clears throat> second sort of approach is what I call build and fix, which is when you implement something quick and dirty, and then you run error analyses and diagnostics to figure out what's wrong, and you fix those errors. The benefit of this second type of approach is that it'll often get your application working much more quickly. Um, and, and especially for those of you, if you end up working in a company, and sometimes if you end up working in a company, you know, very often it's not the best product that wins, it's the first product, it's the first product to market that wins. And so there's, especially if you're in industry, there's really something to be said for you know, building a system quickly and getting it deployed quickly. Um, and the second approach of building a quick and dirty, I want to say, hack, and then fixing the problems will actually get you to a system that works well much more quickly. Um, and the reason is, very often it's really not clear what parts of a system are easy or difficult to build, and therefore what you need to spend lots of time focusing on. So there was that complicated example I talked about just now, right, for, 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 identifying, um, uh, for identifying people, say. And with a big complicated learning system like this, a big complicated pipeline like this, it's really not obvious at the outset which of these components you should spend lots of time working on. Right? And, and if you didn't know that pre-processing wasn't the right component, you could easily have spent three months working on better background subtraction, not knowing that it's just not going to ultimately matter. And so the only way to find out what really works is influence something quickly and find out what parts, and, and, and find out um, what parts are really the hard parts to implement, or what parts are hard parts that could make a big difference in performance. In fact, I'll say that if your goal is to build a people recognition system, a system like this is actually far too complicated as your initial system. Um, maybe after you prototype a few systems, you may converge to a system like this, but if this is your first system you're designing, this is much too complicated. Um, also, this is a very concrete piece of advice, and this applies to your projects as well. Um, if you go to get a working application, step one is actually probably not to design a system like this. Step one is for you to plot your data. Um, and very often, if you just take the data you're trying to predict and just plot your data, plot x, plot y, plot the data everywhere you can think of, you know, half the time you look at it and go, gee, how come all those numbers are negative? I thought it should be positive. Something's wrong with this data set. And about half the time you find something obviously wrong with your data or something very surprising. And this is something you find out just by plotting your data um, and that you won't find out by implementing these big complicated learning algorithms on it. Um, plotting the data sounds so simple. It's one of the pieces of advice that lots of us give that hardly anyone follows. So, so you can take that for what it's worth. Um, 
let me just reiterate what I just said here may be bad advice if you if you go to come up with new machine learning algorithms. Right? So so for me personally, the learning algorithm I use the most often is probably logistic regression because I have code lying around. So you know, give me a learning problem. I probably won't try anything more complicated than logistic regression on it first. It's only after trying something really simple and figure out what's easy, what's hard, then you know where to focus your efforts. But again, if you go to invent new machine learning algorithms, then you sort of don't want to hack up something and then add another hack to fix it and then hack it even more to fix it, right? So if you go to do novel machine learning research, then, then it pays to think more deeply about the problem rather than follow this specifically. Um, shoot, you know what? All right, I'm running, slightly run late, but I just have two more slides, so let me go through these quickly. Um, oh, and, and so this, this is what I, think of as a premature statistical optimization, where, where quite often, just, as, just like premature optimization of code, quite often people will prematurely optimize one component of a big complicated machine learning system. Um, <clears throat> just two more slides. Um, this, was, this was a sort of cartoon that, that highly influenced my own thinking. It was based on a paper written by Christos Papadimitriou. Um, this is how progress, this is how development or progress of research often happens, right? Let's say you want to build a mail delivery robot. So I've drawn a circle there that says mail delivery robot. It seems like a useful thing to have, right? You know, free up people to deliver mail. So, well, to deliver mail, obviously you need a robot to wander around indoor environments and you need a robot to manipulate objects, to pick up envelopes. And so you need to build those two components in order to get a mail delivery robot. And so, Drawn those two components and little arrows to denote that you know obstacle avoidance is needed or will help build your mail delivery robot. Well, to do obstacle avoidance, clearly you need a robot that can navigate and you need to detect objects so you can avoid the obstacles. Now we're going to use computer vision to detect objects, and so um, we know that you know lighting sometimes changes, right? Depending on whether it's the morning or noontime or evening, this is lighting causes the color of things to change. And so you need um, an object detection system that's invariant to the specific colors of an object, because right? lighting changes, say. Well, color, right, this RGB values is sort of represented by three-dimensional vectors, and so you need to learn when two colors might be the same thing. When, when two, you know, visual appearance of two colors might be the same thing, it's just the lighting's change or something. And, um, to understand that properly, we're going to go off and study differential geometry of 3D manifolds because that helps us build a sound theory on which to develop our 3D similarity learning algorithms. Um, and to really understand the fundamental aspects of this problem, we have to study the complexity of non-Riemannian geometries. Um, and on and on it goes until eventually you're proving convergence bound for sample non-monotonic logic. I didn't know that because I just made it up. Um, <laughs> Whereas in reality, you know, chances are that link is in real. Um, color invariance is going to just barely help object recognition. Maybe I'm making this up. Um, maybe a different geometry was hardly going to help 3D similarity learning. That link is also going to fail. Okay, so each of these circles can represent a person or a research community or a thought in your head. And there's a very real chance that. Maybe there are all these papers written on differential geometry of 3D manifolds, and they're all written because some guy once told someone else that it will help for 3D similarity of learning. And, you know, it's like a friend of mine told me that color invariance will help on object recognition, so I'm working on color invariance, and then I'm going to tell a friend of mine 
that his thing will help my problem, and he'll tell a friend of his that his thing will help with his problem. And pretty soon you're working on convergence balance sample non-monotonic logic, when rea in reality none of these will see the light of day of your mail delivery robot. Right? Um, I'm not criticizing the role of theory. There are very powerful theories, like the theory of VC dimension, which is far, far, far to the right of this. So VC dimension is about as theoretical as it can get. And it's clearly had a huge impact on many applications and has you know, dramatically advanced state of machine learning. Another example is theory of NP-hardness. That's again, you know, it's about as theoretical as it can get. This has such a huge application on, on, on all of computer science, the theory of NP-hardness. But um, when you're off working on highly theoretical things, I guess, to me personally, it's important to keep in mind, um, are you working on something like VC dimension, which is high impact? Are you working on something like convergence bound for sample non-montanic logic? which you're only hoping has some peripheral relevance to some application, okay? Um, for me personally, I tend to work on an application only if I, excuse me, for me personally, this is a personal choice, I tend to trust something only if I personally can see a link from the theory I'm working on all the way back to an application. And if I don't personally, if I don't personally see it directly from what I'm doing to an application, then you know, then that's fine. Then I, then I can choose to work on theory, but I then wouldn't necessarily trust that what the theory I'm working on will relate to an application, if I don't personally see a link all the way back. Um, just to summarize, um, <coughs> one lesson to take away from today is I think time spent coming with diagnostics for learning algorithms is often time well spent. Um, it's often up to your own ingenuity to come up with the right diagnostics. And just when I personally, when I'm working on machine learning algorithm, it's not uncommon for me to spending like between a third and often half of my time just writing diagnostics and trying to figure out what's going right and what's going wrong. Um, sometimes it's tempting not to, right? Because you want to be implementing learning algorithms and making progress. You're only spending all this time you know, implementing tests on your learning algorithms. It doesn't feel like you're doing anything. But when I implement learning algorithms, at least a third and quite often half of my time is actually spent implementing those tests and to figure out what to work on. And I think it's actually one of the best uses of your time. Um, talk about error analyses and the base of analyses, and lastly, um, talked about you know, different approaches and the risks of premature, premature statistical optimization. Okay, so we're running over. Um, I'll be here for a few more minutes if you have questions. Let's close today. <laughs>